Ephesians chapter number 5 tonight, and uh, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 17, and we'll read just a few verses tonight, we'll be using all of them in the preaching. Uh, Ephesians 5:17 begins this way, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Father, I pray that you'd bless now the preaching your word for these next few moments. I pray that you would speak directly to my heart Lord, directly to the hearts of those that are under the sound of my voice. Father, we've come tonight helpless to effect spiritual and lasting change within ourselves and within others. But, Lord, we believe for the Word of God to have power tonight in the hearts of those that are here. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in Ephesians chapter number 5, the Apostle Paul has uh, been speaking of what are probably the most lofty principles in all of the Pauline epistles. I mean, if uh, the book of Galatians sort of deals with uh, the local church and salvation, so many of these things just right down on our level where we live at with our struggles and difficulties, uh, deals with the imperfection of our behavior. The book of Ephesians lifts us up into heavenly places and deals with things relating to the finished work of Christ and the spiritual situation of believers. But it should be no surprise that of all the great lofty theological uh, topics that Paul deals with in Ephesians, it funnels down into our daily behavior. And I want you to listen carefully. Theology means nothing if it does not change the way we live and behave. Uh, this Bible is not meant to be a theoretical book. It's a theological book. And it being a theological book also makes it a practical book. One of the great things I believe that is uh, is paralyzing the church today is we are doer or hearers of the word without being doers of the word. Uh, we know so many of us, and we may not be able to speak of it in in uh, te- you know technical theological language, but so many of us we've been raised in church. We know the principles and truths of the word of God. Uh, we have uh, we have absorbed them, but the problem is we've just not been changed by them. And uh, we get into a bad habit when we hear the preaching of the Word of God. We've somehow learned how to hear something as powerful as this book is and still remain unchanged in the hearing of it. And it is a deadly thing to the walk of the believer. And so Paul, as he has dealt with all of these things, he comes down and beginning in chapter number 5, and you can see it at the beginning of chapter number 5, he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, walk in love. He's talking about our behavior, the way that we live and the way that we act. And in chapter 5 and verses 17 through 21, I want us to take notice of a continuing theme, I believe, or maybe some truths, if I could say it this way, that point back to verse number 17. Now look at verse 17 with me. Paul says, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. I want to preach to you tonight on what the will of the Lord is. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I didn't bring a crystal ball with me. Amen? And even if I had, it certainly wouldn't do any good to me or to anyone else. But I do believe that there are certain truths we can learn about what the will of God is for the life of every believer. 
And we can look at our lives and examine whether these things be present or not in the way that we're living. I would just, before we even get into an introduction, like to point out the uh, way that Paul contrasts this idea of knowing the will of God and not knowing what the will of God is. Notice it again in verse 17. He says, Be ye not unwise. Now, how can we keep from being unwise? By understanding what the will of the Lord is. I would say this to you tonight. It's unwise to live out of the will of God. And it is unwise to live without knowing what the will of God is. Now, there are some people that I've known in my life, and you've probably known some too, that knew the will of God and ran from it. You ever known anybody like that? I'm always struck by what the Bible says about Jonah and the way that he ran. The Bible says that he, he ran, and he wasn't really running to Tarshish. He was running away from the presence of the Lord. And I've known people like that, that they know what the will of God is, but they do not want to face it. Sometimes they're scared to. Sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. They don't like what they might have to change in their life to live within the will of God. But I would say this to you, that more people, rather than knowing the will of God and running from it, I know far more people that just simply do not know what the will of God is for their life. They, what the book Proverbs told us, they are leaning under their own understanding. I've said this to you before, that uh, that passage, lean not under your own understanding. Leaning to your own understanding, that's a passive thing. It's not an active thing. You don't have to do anything to lean under your own understanding. What you have to do to lean under your own understanding is not pursue and find and learn the will of God. If you're not finding the will of God, then you are leaning under your own understanding. It's not saying that we know what God's will is and we push it away, but it's merely saying we don't even care to find out what God's will is about something. This manifests itself most often, I believe, in the life of believers in not praying about matters. I believe one of the uh, simplest ways that we can understand and know and learn the will of God is to pray and ask God to reveal it to us. And there are so many people that talk about wanting to know God's will that have never prayed about knowing God's will. They talk about it. They know they should. They, they know they need to, but they've just never taken the time to stop and say, Lord, what is your mind upon this particular matter? I think oftentimes it's a lack of faith in the will of God as well as a lack of faith in prayer. You see, you and I, we need to learn what the will of God is for our life. Now, I would say this to you. There is the revealed will of God. And then there is the personal will of God. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, there's some things that's the will of God for everybody. It does not matter what your situation, circumstance, what your age or gender or, or tax bracket is. It's the will of God certain things are. You don't even have to pray about those things. The Bible speaks authoritatively that this is the will of God. But then there's the personal will of God. It's the will of God for me to be the pastor of Wall Ridge Baptist Church. I believe that with my whole heart. And that's not a point of pride. If I didn't believe it was the will of God, I ought to step down. Somebody say amen to that. I hope nobody out there believes it's the will of God for them to be the pastor of Walridge Baptist Church. We might have to have a talk. Somebody say amen there. You see, this is the will of God for me, but that don't mean it's the will of God for you in that personal, particular matter. Let me say this to you tonight. I want you to listen carefully to me. The personal will of God is revealed within the revealed will of God. You want to know what the will of God is for your life. I'm talking about the personal will of God for your life. You get in the revealed will of God and make sure you're doing what you know to do. And then God lets you know what the next thing is for you to do. So oftentimes, I saw this with young people. Most of you know I was a youth pastor for several years. 
And I saw young people, they wanted to know everything about what God's will was going to be for the rest of their life. I mean, they wanted to know who they was going to marry and where they was going to work, where they was going to go to school, where they was going to uh, live. They wanted to know what kind of house they was going to buy, what kind of car they was going to buy. They wanted to know what gender their baby was going to be, what their middle name was. But here was the problem. They weren't reading their Bible. They weren't praying. Oftentimes, they was yoked up with somebody they had no business being yoked up with. And they were asking God to reveal things to them when they were not walking in the things that God had already revealed to them. And you mark her down, when God gives us light, we're expected to walk in it. And don't ask God for more light if you ain't walking in the light that God has revealed unto you. So the the personal or particular will of God in our lives is learned within the revealed will of God. We get in what God's will is. We obey the Lord, get our life where it needs to be. And then as the time comes that our uh, participation is necessary, God will reveal things to us. I I jotted down three things about the will of God or three characteristics that I think are important for us to understand before we even start to look at these verses. Let me say, number one, that the will of God is a definite thing. The will of God is a real thing. Now, I know that seems elementary to say, but the problem is very few people live like that's so. Now, they'll say, I know God has a plan for my life, but they never seek to learn what that plan is. They'll say, I believe God has a will for my life, but then when it comes time to make decisions, sometimes very big, very life-altering decisions, they never stop to pray and see what God's will might be. God does have a will for your life. God is very specific in His will for your life. Now, I can't tell you that God is necessarily going to reveal to you whether you need to take one way home from church tonight or another way home from church tonight. I will tell you this. There's been times God has spoken that specifically to me. Uh, Maybe not every time, but there have been times that God has done that in my life. But I will tell you this, that uh, God does have an opinion about the way we live. God has an opinion about where you work, what you drive. You say, well, preacher, what do you mean? Well, listen, I'm not saying he's a Chevrolet man or a Ford man. What I'm saying is this, when it comes to the big fiscal decisions of our life, God will give us wisdom to do that which would uh, be glorifying to him and that which would cause us to be a good steward of what he's blessed us with. You better believe we have scriptural authority that God cares who we marry. And who, we, who we're with. And let me say for young people, too, who we might date or spend time around. Uh, listen, God didn't make uh, Adam about six or seven wives and say, now you just pick whichever one looks good for you. He made him one wife and said, this is your wife. He had a will about who Adam was married to. He had a decision. He had something to say about it. So it's a definite thing. Let me say number two, the will of God is a defined thing. Or inasmuch as we speak about the revealed will of God, We are speaking about a defined thing. God has shown us in His Word several things that He has made clear are His will. Can I give you one example? The Bible says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the will of God. The Bible says that to flee fornication, that that's the will of God. So God speaks clearly on things. Now, sometimes God doesn't speak when we want Him to speak. But when He does speak, He speaks clearly. One of the misconceptions I think we've given young people, and we have to be careful sometimes, there is a a language in church. And there are certain things, and I try to examine myself as a pastor in this respect. There are certain things I could say that a good chunk of the people in this room would know exactly what I'm talking about. But some people, either people that are unsaved or people that haven't grown up in church, and sometimes, let me tell you this, even young people, 
they have trouble understanding what that language is and, and what that language means. And I think sometimes we speak in sort of semantics and, and buzzwords and so on and so forth when we don't speak clearly and plainly about what we're trying to say unto them. We need to focus ourselves better to clearly defining what the Word of God says. And let me give you one example of that. People talk about the still small voice. You ever heard a preacher preach on the still small voice? You ever heard a preacher get up and talk about, oh, that still small voice that speaks to me in the midst of the storm? And everybody around go, hey, man, preacher, hey, man, hey, man. Let me tell you something. I think we have conveyed to a younger generation this idea that the will of God is a difficult thing to find. And we talk about God speaking in a still small voice. Now, I know the passage. I could take you to, uh, to 1 Kings 19. I could talk about uh, Elijah. I could talk about what that means. I could really probably tell you some things that a lot of people couldn't tell you about. And I don't mean that in a prideful way, but I just mean about why it was a still small voice and what Elijah was experiencing. But I think we have sort of given the impression to young people that sometimes we're going to have trouble knowing what God's saying. Well, let me tell you something. I understand that there's times God has still small voice, but I would suggest this to you. You know, the psalmist talked about the Lord's voice thundering upon many waters. And the fact that the Lord, when He speaks, He speaks clearly and He speaks boldly and He speaks loudly. If we want to know the will of God, God is very well equipped to show us what His will is. The will of God's not a murky thing. Now you say, but preacher, there's things I don't understand about the will of God for my life right now. Well, I understand that. And there might be two reasons for that. One, there might be some things you've set up that have become a filter for God speaking to you in your life. Oftentimes, and listen, I know I ain't even into the message yet, but I believe it's what the Lord wants me to say. Oftentimes, here's what we do. We put certain things up, barriers, parameters, limits to what God can deal with us about. Uh, let me give you just a for instance. Let's say two young people are, are uh, dating one another. And uh, they're, they're praying, they're seeking God's will, but they've already made their mind up. They want that person for the rest of their life. And they're not really listening to what God may be telling them. They're waiting for God to tell them what they're already hoping to hear. I've seen adults do the same thing when it comes to houses or vehicles or, or, or uh, jobs or whatever it might be. They make their mind up and then go to God and ask God to rubber stamp their plans. And so God is trying to speak to them, but they'll not hear what God's trying to say. Every time God tries to say something through the reading the Word of God or through uh, maybe their devotional time or through the preaching of the Word of God, it's always for somebody else, right? It's never for them because they've already made up their mind it's not for them. I'd say there's a second reason oftentimes that we can't understand the will of God is it may not be time yet for us to know what the will of God is about a particular matter. i tell you this, I'm a planner, and it drives people crazy that spend time around me. Like when we go to take a vacation, I have certain things I want to do on that vacation. And, and most people, when they go on vacation, they just want to go and do whatever they want and kick around and just take time. I remember the, the last time we went on vacation, my brother went with us. My brother does not have any children. My brother's single. Uh, me and Lee and little man went on vacation with, with him. And uh, we, we were there uh, at the beach, and, and we were wanting to do some fishing there in the surf and stuff. And I, I'd ask him, I'd say, Tyler, uh, what time do you want to get up and go out and go fishing tomorrow? He said, ah, oh, whenever. And I say, okay, well, that's fine, but like, what time do you want to go out and go fishing? Oh, it don't matter to me, man, whenever you want to go. Let me tell you something. When you have kids, you don't get no more, oh, whenever, it don't matter whenever we want to go. 
Because in my mind, I was thinking, all right, if we get out there at 9 o'clock, we'll be able to fish two hours before we have to bring little man back in. He's going to have to lay down and take a nap, but before he does, he's going to have to eat lunch. And sometimes that takes a little time to do. And then after he lays down, when he gets up from his nap, it'll take this amount of time to feed him again. And then we're going to have to go do this, 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 that. That whole thing of doing whatever, whenever, went out the window. Amen? And so I've, I've sort of learned to plan. And, and uh, you know, oftentimes as a planner, I want to know the whole plan before I really need to know the whole plan. I want to know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and what way it's going to happen. One of the things God has had to teach me is there's some things that I don't need to know until I need to know. And sometimes God's not going to reveal something to you until it's time for you to know what that matter is. You say, well, preacher, what do I do? You do what you know to do until you know to do something different. Amen? You just stay faithful. It goes back to that revealed will of God. It is a defined thing. We can know the will of God, but we need to understand it is a divine thing. It's a divine thing. We need to find the will of God from God. Amen? There's no shortcut to that. Let me tell you something. This is, I have learned, and as a pastor, I have had to make my mind up that I'm not going to try to usurp the place of the Holy Ghost in people's decision making. It is your responsibility to find the will of God for you and your family. God did not make me the head of anybody's home except my home. You, husbands, are the head of your home. It's your responsibility to find the will of God for your family. And while I hope that through the preaching of the Word of God, and I hope God even lets me have a little part in that preaching that guides you into the will of God, at the end of the day, this has to be something that you receive from God and not from another human being. It's a divine thing. You have to hear it from the Lord. And so Paul says we need to understand what the will of the Lord is. I want to give you five things tonight that I believe are involved in knowing the will of God, both the revealed will of God and the particular will of God for your life and for mine. Look at verse number 18. The Bible says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm going to say something here in a moment about drunkenness, but I want to apply this in a broader sense than just drunkenness. And I want you to notice that the first thing that is mentioned after the will of God is mentioned is a specific commandment and parameter that in the New Testament church, in the day of grace, in the day when our sins have been washed by Calvary, in a day when we're not under the constraints of the law, the first thing that God points to is a commandment. And let me say this to you tonight, that the will of God involves precepts that you and I are commanded to obey and that God has certain expectations upon your life and upon mine. Now, let me tell you, in this day of, uh, of watered-down, weak, soft, generic, uh, marginalized Christianity, and that's the day we're living in, in this day, there's this running theme that I can, I can live for the Lord and be in the will of God and it not change the way I behave and the way that I act. I want to go ahead and tell you. Now listen, what I'm about to tell you is never going to be popular. Okay? So if you're waiting for society to validate what I'm about say, to say to you, it's never going to happen. If you're waiting for the majority of the professing church to agree with what I'm about to say to you, then that day's never going to come, at least not on this side of glory, and you might as well come to terms with the fact that what I'm about to say is out of lockstep with the world. If you're going to live in the will of God, it's going to require you to moderate and change your behavior to be in accordance with the truth of the Word of God. 
Your actions, my actions, do matter. They do matter. Now, they may not change my station with God or my status with God. I'm a child of God, born again, washed in the blood, forever sealed, eternally justified, and I could go on and on. And I rejoice in every one of those things. But when we're talking about the will of God, we're talking about what God wants out of your life and out of mine. You know, the book of Ephesians, the very same one, you can turn back to chapter number 2 that we're in tonight. Listen to what the Bible says. Now, people would like these first two verses. Look what it says in verse number 8 of chapter 2. You know this verse. Most of you could quote it. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, that is sort of the calling card. That is sort of the the motto of this, this group of Christianity that says our actions don't matter, and we can live any way that we want. We can act like the world, behave like the world, do anything we choose, and it does not matter, because by grace are we saved, not of works. And that's true. Amen? That's true. But they have conveniently stopped short of verse number 10, where the Bible says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That's true that your good works do not save you. It's true that your good works do not help save you. It's true that your good works do not make you more saved. But it's equally true that you've been saved unto good works. After you've been born again by grace, by faith, with no help, with no uh, work, with no merit, with no righteousness of your own, which is the only way a person can be saved, after that, God has saved you and changed you, and He expects you to live in accordance with the truth of God's Word. It involves precepts. I would say this, and I didn't even really, uh, really involve this in my notes, but I would say this, not only does it involve precepts, but evidently it also involves a person. Because notice what it says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Can I say something before I move past that? Because I believe it needs to be said. There's a lot of folks who have tried to change that verse in the King James Bible to say something else. Here's what they would like it to say. They would like to say, Be not drunk excessively with wine. But that's not what your Bible says. Not if you've got the right Bible. Amen? It says, be not drunk with wine. Wherein is excess? It's not saying don't be excessively drunk. It's saying that being drunk leads to excess. You could turn over to the book of Proverbs 23. I'm not going to ask you to. But take time later on and you'll see what the Word of God is talking about when it talks about who hath woe and who hath babblings and who hath redness of eyes and who hath a sickness without cause. And it's talking about all the wickedness that comes from alcohol. That's the excess. Amen? And uh, the Bible doesn't say, be not excessively drunk with wine. It says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. But then notice the next phrase says, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, here's a, a disconnect that most people have when it comes to this truth. They, they view the Christian walk as a matter of abstinence from sin. But, beloved, abstinence from sin is not what pleases God. Obedience to the Spirit is what pleases God. And obedience to the Spirit will produce abstinence from sin. In other words, you can live as straight as you possibly could. But if you're not walking in the Spirit of God, you're still not pleasing the Lord. By the same token, if you're walking in the Spirit of the Lord, 
then you're going to walk a straight life. Not a perfect life. We understand that. I'm not going going to sit here and qualify every single statement I make tonight with that. But you understand we're not talking about sinless perfection. But we are talking about separation and sanctification and consecration. We're talking about living a biblical lifestyle. And so we might say this, and I even talked about this, I can't remember when, sometime in the past few weeks. Sometimes people say, boy, I love what you preach on last Sunday, and I'm thinking, I don't have a clue what I preached on last Sunday, amen? But I remember at some point in the faint fogginess of my mind, talking about the difference between separation and consecration. And separation is to remove yourself from the world, and consecration is to place yourself in communion with God. And one without the other is incomplete. You won't have consecration without separation. And separation without consecration is of no benefit to you. Uh, Come out from among them, the Word of God says, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will be a father unto you. In other words, consecration leads to communion, and separation is the foundational principle of that. We have to come out from among the world so that we can go in unto Him. It involves that person following the Holy Ghost. Uh, A lot of Baptists don't like that. Well, a lot of people don't like this. But it's biblical to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And being filled with the Holy Ghost, that don't mean talking in tongues. Uh, It's funny how nobody that was filled with the Holy Ghost talked in tongues until about 1900. Isn't that funny, Brother Charlie? Isn't it funny how D.L. Moody never talked in tongues, and Charles Spurgeon never talked in tongues, and George Whitfield never talked in tongues, and uh, Jonathan Edwards never talked in tongues, and John Wesley never talked in tongues? But all of a sudden, in the 1900s, being filled with the Holy Ghost meant talking in tongues. Well, we understand as, as Bible believers that's not so. We're not talking about talking in tongues. Uh, we're not talking about uh, trying to faith healing in the sense of somebody knocking somebody over the head and proclaiming something over them. Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about letting God have every bit of us. That's what being filled with the Holy Ghost is. You're filled with one thing. You don't have no room for nothing else. And it is to surrender our will entirely to the leading of the Holy Ghost and to walk daily in communion with him. I'd say it involves precepts. Look at verse number 19. The Bible says, "...speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord." I'd say this, that the will of God involves praise in the life of the believer. It involves praise. It is the will of God for everybody to praise the Lord. Now, people get uncomfortable when you talk about worship and praise and so on and so forth. That ought not make us uncomfortable. Uh, We're going to have a fit when we get to heaven if we've got a problem with worship and with praise. Praise is a biblical principle. Praise is vital to the joy that the believer experiences in their daily walk. I don't believe we can define praise by uh, my preferential uh, experience of praise or your preferential experience of praise. I remember one preacher put it this way. He said, I don't care how high you jump, just so long as your feet are straight when you hit the ground. Amen. I'll say this, that biblical praise will never take us into something lurid or confusing or unbiblical. But praise, biblical praise is part of the life of the believer. And it's summed up here, I believe, when it talks about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Those aren't sad songs. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because it says singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's talking about us rejoicing in the Lord and speaking of His goodness and of His grace. Psalms 150 and verse 6 puts it this way. You say, preacher, that's for them. That ain't for me. I've heard people say that. That's why I say that. It's because I've heard people say, well, preacher, I'm just not that kind. 
Uh, I want everybody to do something. Would you do something with me tonight? Can we have an exercise? I don't mean like jumping jacks or anything, but I mean like we're all going to do something at one time. Can everybody do this? Can everybody take a big, big, deep breath in? Can everybody on three? One, two, three. Let's try it again, okay? All right. One, two, three. All right. Anybody have trouble with that? Anybody? It, uh, everybody able to do that? Listen to what Psalms 156 says. It says, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Every single one of us, if God has given us a breath within our body, then God expects us to give praise unto Him. There's not a single one of us that's not that kind. If we're saved by the grace of God, and if we can still draw a breath, we are that kind. I believe it involves praise. Look down to verse number 20. The Bible says, "...giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, I want, I want to draw a truth from this, if I can say it that way. Look at the first part of verse number 20. It says, "...giving thanks always for all things unto God." And let me say this to you tonight, that the will of God involves providence. It involves providence. We're not always going to understand what God is doing in our lives. But it's the will of God that we trust God regardless of whether we understand what He's doing in our lives. Giving thanks unto God always, the Bible says, giving thanks always for all things unto God. Sort of like what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians when he says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, I don't believe he's just talking about good things. I believe he's also talking about bad things. Uh, Let me tell you something. Sometimes life is bad, but God is always good. I think sometimes there is a, a a facade, a mask that we wear sometimes. And I don't know that it's real healthy, where we pretend like everything's just always all right. Let me tell you something. You don't have to pretend like everything's always all right to acknowledge that God is always good. And can I give you a good example of that? You remember what Job said? He looked at his wife and he said, We have received good at the hand of the Lord, and we have received evil. He said, Shall we not receive evil as well? And he was saying, What God is doing in my life, I perceive to be evil. I don't believe he was saying morally evil. I believe he was saying experientially evil. You might put it this way, if I could put it in good old hillbilly language, I don't like what's going on in my life right now. There's nothing wrong with being displeased with the circumstances of your life, as long as you can acknowledge that God loves you and He's good and He's still working even when you can't see it. Uh, Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What Job realizes is this. I may have a lot of bad things in my life, but God isn't one of them. I may have a lot of things in my life that I am displeased with, but God isn't one of them. Listen, if you were to walk out of here tonight and wind up down at the hospital, I wouldn't expect you to be thrilled about that. If you were to walk out of here tonight and wreck your car, I wouldn't expect you to be pleased with that. But I would expect you in the midst of it to say this, I don't understand it and I'm not happy about it, but man, God has been good to me. It could have been way worse than it has been. And certainly I know that God has a plan and purpose in what He has allowed to take place in my life. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8. Most of you know this verse. You could quote it with me, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. No matter what happens in our life, we understand that inasmuch as we're walking in the will of God, God doesn't waste any time, right? 
God doesn't waste any effort, right? God doesn't waste any words, right? Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord is good, right? God doesn't waste anything. So I've learned this. When I'm walking in the will of God, when I know the will of God and I'm following it, that whatever pathway I might have been on was the shortest possible distance between where I was and where God wanted me to be with the desired effect for God's glory. God does not send us on detours. We take detours, but God does not send us on detours. And in your life, you may say, well, preacher, I don't know why God allowed this. Well, I don't know why He allowed it either. But I know if you were walking the will of God, then God must have allowed it. And I know that though you may not see or understand it now, there was a reason for God allowing it. Because God wouldn't have allowed it for no reason. I see that the will of God involves providence. Look at the end of verse number 20. The Bible says this, "...giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father." In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say this, that the will of God involves prayer. Prayer. We understand that's really what Paul is talking about in verse number 20 when he says giving thanks. And we know that because he says unto God. So the only way we can speak to the Lord is through prayer, right? Uh, that's how we communicate with God. And so when he says that we're to give this thanks, he's saying that our prayer life needs to be in order and needs to be how it ought to be. It is the will of God for every believer to pray. It does not matter what you feel in the midst of your prayers as it relates to whether it's the will of God for you to pray or not. Now, I'll be honest with you, okay? If if nobody else in here will be, I'll be honest with you tonight in saying this. Sometimes prayer is easy and sometimes prayer is hard. Sometimes prayer is enjoyable. Sometimes prayer is arduous. There are times when I get alone with God and it's like my... My soul and my heart just open like a floodgate. It's almost like I can sense that heaven is hearing what I'm saying. There are other times when I pray that it's almost like I have to claw and fight for every prayer that I manage to get prayed. So if you're here tonight and you say, well, preacher, sometimes it's hard to pray. Well, join the club. That's all of us. And so I'm not trying to dismiss or or belittle our desire to enjoy and engage in our prayer life. We should all desire to do that. I understand that. There's nothing wrong with it. I am saying this. The mere fact that your prayer life is not easy does not mean that it's not effective. The purpose of prayer is not to make us feel something. The purpose of prayer is to relate our petitions unto God and for God to then work sovereignly and providentially in our lives to bring about a greater faith in Him and dependence upon Him to draw us more into prayer. The purpose of prayer is more prayer. And that's the product of more prayer, is more prayer. Now you say, well, preacher, that seems redundant, doesn't it? No, because every time God answers a prayer, He's strengthening our faith. We see that God has answered. We see that God has worked. And we begin to trust Him more. And so we go to Him and pray more because we're more confident that God is able to answer those prayers. If you want to know what the will of God is, it's that you pray. Paul said it this way, pray without ceasing. Uh, Christ said this, in, uh, or it's said about Christ, I guess I should say, in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. It says, And He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not faint. And you can go on. It, it was the, the, the uh, parable about the judge that finally gives in to the widow woman that's pleading her case. But what I want you to notice is that Christ told this parable to get the point across to them that it's the will of God for all men always to be in prayer. Say, preacher, what can I do? What definite step can I take towards the will of God tonight? You can begin by praying. You can begin by praying. 
Never have to wonder whether prayer is within the will of God. Let me give you one final thing, and I'm done tonight. Look down at verse 21. Now, in my Schofield Bible, it begins a new section here. And I understand why. I've spent plenty of time counseling young couples and and counseling married couples about these truths. But I believe it may be a little bit of a disservice to immediately segue without noticing this in the previous context. The Bible says this, "...submitting yourselves one to another..." In the fear of God. Let me say finally to you tonight that prayer, or that the will of God involves preferring one another above yourself. It is the will of God that we see to the needs of those that are around us. Now, that's not to say that we should try to meet every single need of every single person in the world. Uh, listen, I'm aware. We, we live in a day. You get on Facebook. I don't know if you got Facebook. Get home. Get on Facebook. And you'll find 8 million people that need help. I understand that. We can't meet every need. But I also understand this, that so often the only needs we're interested in meeting are our own needs and not those around us. Uh, we ought to be selfless. Can we not take the example of our Lord and Savior? Was there ever anyone more selfless than He? Was there ever anyone that deserved the glory more, but that shunned it so fiercely? Was there ever anyone that deserved the adoration so much, and yet so wholly embraced scorn and rebuke as the Son of God? I'm reminded of what Paul says in Philippians chapter number 2, when he talks about, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying this, that Christ did not uh, condescend to our level in incarnation because He thought it was inappropriate for Him to be on the same level as God. He is God. He is very God. Amen? Uh, He is the express image of God's glory and the brightness of His His glory and the express image of His person. Uh, There was nothing inappropriate about Christ being co-equal and co-eternal and co-existent with God. Nothing. Nothing inappropriate about that who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the nature of man. He, became, uh, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And you know it's in that very chapter in Philippians chapter 2 that Paul, before he ever talks about that, he says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We live in a world whose philosophy is to look out for number one, right? Can I tell you something tonight? I agree with that. I just have a different definition of who number one is than the world does. I agree with that. We need to look out for number one. But number one is not here. Number one is right there. And His will for your life and mine is that we live in self-sacrifice and love and compassion to those that are around us. I'll tell you this, if your life is all about you, you're out of the will of God. I know that's harsh. I know that's definitive. But I believe it's biblically authoritative too. If your life does not in any way take into consideration how you might meet the needs of others, then your life's out of the will of God. It is the will of God for us to submit to one another in the fear of God. It is the will of God for us to look on another man instead of looking on ourselves. In other words, we ought not worry about ourselves. God will worry about us. We ought to look to the needs of those that are around us. Now, there's much more 
I believe the Lord's done with us tonight. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.